and welcome to the Urban Permaculture Podcast. My name's Heather, I'm with Hogs and Hens Urban Farm, and I've got an interesting episode lined up for you today. It's not the most glamorous or glorious topic in the world, but it is something that is very necessary in a permaculture world. That's right, we're talking about compost today. Um, First of all, I want to back it up a little bit. We talked a little bit um, in episode two about what is permaculture. So permaculture is a holistic system designed for sustainability and food production. Permaculture is the art of joining humans, plants, animals, and the earth to create a balanced ecosystem that is mutually beneficial. Um, Ultimately, permaculture centers around three main principles, and these three principles are kind of the driving force behind everything that we do within the field of permaculture. So the first is earth care, and that's being a good steward of the land, thinking of the future, setting things up that are, well, permanent. Number two is people care, making resources available to everybody. And number three is fair share. It's sharing your surplus to allow continuity and um, just being a good steward of of the harvest. And going forward, I want to make sure that each of the topics that I cover, I mention what part of the permaculture principles um, are really kind of being demonstrated. And honestly and, and, and truly, this particular topic of composting is kind of cover all of them really um you know it's earth care because you're being a good steward of the land by making sure that we are you know preparing um these products that would otherwise be waste and putting them back out there as as a good thing um we're helping people because we're sharing that knowledge by me having this podcast and we're we're sharing um you know, we're we're sharing just in a lot of different ways. So we're going to talk about some of the different kinds of composting. And some of them we use here at Hogs and Hens. Some of them we do not. Some of them we're going to be adding in the future maybe. And other ones are just not right for us at this time. Um, so the first kind of composting that we do here on the farm we have a little bucket. I've talked about my drywall bucket before, but it literally is just an empty drywall spackle bucket. Um, I believe it's just a one gallon container, nothing fancy with a pink lid. And uh, we drilled a bunch of holes in the top of it for ventilation. And when I'm cutting up things for a salad or making meals, we just throw the veggie scraps into that pail. That also includes our coffee grinds. Um, Bob drinks coffee pretty much every day, sometimes multiple pots of coffee in the day. And those coffee grounds get put right into the bucket because they are an excellent, excellent addition to compost. I am a big fan of tea. Um, So when we have tea, I will open up the tea bags and put them in there as long as they're not the plastic ones. Um, I really enjoy a loose leaf tea, so a lot of times it's even easier. I just simply open the tea ball and dump it right in the bucket. But otherwise, I just make sure that I have a biodegradable tea bag or I make sure to take the staple and the plastic bits off before composting. And then everything from veggie scraps to our eggshells get put in that bucket. Now, when the bucket gets full, it gets added to the big 
compost storage system we have outside. Currently, it is a two-bay, soon to be a three-bay composting system, and I'll get into the details of that in just a moment. <clears throat> inside the house, right inside our front door, um, you know, there, we've talked about the permaculture zones. There are basically five, sometimes six, permaculture zones, and um, this would be a permaculture zone zero. It's inside my home. And that is right inside the front door. We have a paper shredder. Now you're wondering, what does that have at all to do with permaculture? But in reality, it's a really important part of our permaculture principles here on the farm. So like it or not, we get a ton of junk mail every single day. Now I cannot compost the magazines and the glossy ads that we receive but the dozens and dozens and dozens of letters that are just printed paper I absolutely will shred those and make use of those in our compost bin so when the bucket gets full from shredded mail then that gets added to our compost bin outside and it is a good source of browns. Now we'll talk about the difference between brown and green material in compost um, here in a little bit, but it's a great way for me to have that dry, crispy, heavy carbon material in um, our, our compost and it eliminates a waste stream. We get so much, so much junk mail and you know, we just have to be really careful to make sure that we're only adding the compost compostable things in there. Um, it's it been a game changer for us. It makes it so that our mail doesn't pile up quite so bad. As soon as we get the mail, we kind of sort it, and the things that are able to be composted that are junk mail immediately go straight into the shredder, and the things that are not go into a separate bin that we use um, when we burn things. Um, so like our magazines and, and glossy paper, we will use those to either start fires with, or they go into our recycle bin and get sent off to the city to be recycled. So that's my in-home compost setup currently. Then in our back room, we have our vermicomposting setup. Now vermicomposting is using earthworms to digest uh, food scraps and things and turn them into worm castings, which is basically worm manure. And it is some of the absolute best compost that you can get. It is technically a manure, but it is fantastic. It is a really dark, rich, black, um, very earthy smelling material, and it breaks down fantastic in the garden. It just is a nutrient powerhouse. So to get that going, we had an old, a really old cooler that had wheels on it, and we have too many coolers. Uh, when I met Bob and moved in with him, I brought all of my own things into a household that already had all of the things. So it's just one of those things we had that was a duplicate. So what we did is we put a thin layer of dirt in the bottom. And then on top of the dirt, we added food and veggie scraps. And then we added some shredded paper. And then we added a little bit more dirt. And then we added more veggie scraps. And then we added shredded up um, toilet tissue tubes. Um, so from our toilet paper and our paper towels, we chopped up some of that brown cardboard that's in there and put in there and mix a little bit more of that junk mail um, paper scrap in there. And then we got the whole thing pretty damp. And then we put um, a couple of dozen red wiggler worms inside the bin. 
Now those red wiggler worms are going to go through and they're going to munch on all of those veggie scraps, the paper and such, and they're going to tunnel through and aerate it and basically do the job of turning the pile that you would normally do in an outside compost bin for you. Now those worms are also going to reproduce, so they're going to create more worms. The nice thing about that is about every 60 to 90 days, you're going to double the amount of earthworms that you have. The downside is that it doesn't get super hot. It is not a hot composting method in a sense. And so we threw some melon, um, and, no, I'm sorry, it was squash, with squash seeds and guts. So I had gotten um, one of our squashes that I had gone ahead and prepped up for dinner. And I threw all of the um, kind of the squash guts, the the stringy inner material that has the seeds in it. I threw that into our worm bin and buried it with some paper. Didn't think much of it until about a week later when I went to empty some of our compost in the kitchen into that bucket because it was too cold to go outside. And all of my squash seeds had sprouted and were growing in our vermicomposting bin. So that was mildly problem problematic because now I've got things growing in there. So obviously the soil was great because the seedlings were more than happy to germinate. But it is not a good thing in the end because, you know, I'm growing an indeterminate squash. I honestly can't even tell you what variety of squash was in there because it was already a hybrid between a butternut squash and some zucchini. Um, so that is one drawback to the vermicomposting setup that we've got going on. Now, one of the setups that are fantastic if you're in a small space, like a like an apartment or a condo or just somewhere where you don't have a lot of yard space, but you still want to do this composting <clears throat> is to get a tumbler. So what that is, it's a drum of varying sizes, depending on what you purchase. And you load your, your material right into the drum. Usually they have a sliding door that'll latch closed and then you spin it. Um, think of like a bingo collar where they have the little numbers for bingo in it and you just kind of turn it around. That gets air moving through it. It breaks up the material and it keeps it from going anaerobic. You do not want it to go anaerobic because that's when you're going to start having a really stinky compost. Keeping your compost nice and fresh and full of air and light and, and damp is really important. You want to build up that aerobic activity. You want it to be, um, you know, actively letting the bacteria and the fungus and things grow and and it won't do that if it if it stays stagnant and becomes anaerobic. So having a tumbler is a great way to ensure that you've got all of those conditions met. It's also a fantastic solution if you're worried about pests and rodents. Um, the, the drawback to us having our little bucket under the sink is that if it gets a little full before it gets taken out, sometimes we will have some fruit flies um, or gnats that, that are attracted to the bucket. But we keep it underneath the sink, and for the most part, it doesn't cause us many problems. However, if it were outside, I can guarantee it would be gotten into by our puppies. <clears throat> now, the tumbler system is fantastic. We don't currently use that at this time, and we don't currently have any plans to add that to our existing setup. Because what we have is the two-bin composting setup outside. So we actually built a huge composting setup out of recycled wood, reclaimed wood. It is primarily built out of 
palettes. We talked about, you know, sourcing materials in episode 10. Bob talked about all these palette projects. Well, our compost bins are a palette project. So we built them as a two hopper or two bin um, setup initially. We learned last year that we actually have a lot more leaves than we realized from our trees in the yard, as well as just general yard waste. And so we do need a third bay. So that'll be added um, this spring. But for now, we put the material into one side and we use a pitchfork and just go out there every couple days to make sure that some air is getting in. We make sure that the pile is staying damp and we continually add our kitchen scrap bucket as well as our shredded paper bucket to that as well as any dry or dead plant material when we're pruning things in the garden. We'll go ahead and put those in there. Now we are still very careful about what we put into there because we do have um, on one side of our property, we do have quite a problem with morning glories. I love them. They're beautiful flowers. They are incredibly invasive and seemingly impossible to get rid of. And we do not want to spread those into new areas in our garden because what we've had the problem with these morning glories, they will choke out anything and everything. They just blanket everything and then it starves for um, those nutrients and it dies out. So when we're adding the plant matter to our compost bin, we have to be very, very careful to not introduce an invasive species. Now, while you're doing the um, the composting method where we're making sure we use our pitchfork to get some air in there, we're adding some moisture, that is what's called hot composting. And what that means is the internal temperature of that pile is indeed going to get quite hot, um, well over 140 degrees, in fact. Now, it should kill most things at that level. However, if it's not evenly heating or if in your turning efforts you miss a little piece, you can absolutely introduce an invasive species into your garden when spreading compost. So it is very important when you're trying to figure out what to add to your compost piles that you're being very aware of um, invasive species and potentially invasive species. The same is true for weed seeds. So we do not put any weeds at all into our compost bin. We have a separate um, composting setup we use for weeds um, to make sure we get good use out of those as well. But that does not um, get included in our our bays. Now, what's going to happen soon is that we're going to be taking the large non-broken down parts of our compost and we're going to put it on a big tarp in the yard and then we're going to use a wheelbarrow to actually shovel out the good already broken down uh, compost that's in the bay and empty those bays and then we'll put that material back into the bay to continue breaking down. Um, what's left in there are some of our uh, tomato plants from last year and some of our sweet potato vines. We went ahead and composted those last year and some of them were pretty stout and so they're not broken down all the way yet. But that doesn't mean that they won't break down. They just were quite large and they're going to take longer to break down than the other things that were in there. Now, we added quite a bit of leaves because we do have a couple of trees on our property. And so the tree leaves from the maple tree, the willow tree, those made it into the compost bin. Now, we did not include the leaves from our um, large 
walnut tree because the walnut tree is going to include that juglone or juglone that is a chemical that will actually stop plant growth and that's that's right in the leaves and the twigs and the root systems of that walnut tree so I have to be very careful when harvesting leaves to make sure I have not collected walnut leaves because that's actually going to do a lot to ruin your compost um, that doesn't mean that the walnut can't be used for other things because it can and it will be used for other things but being added to a soil or becoming a soil amendment is not one of them and now another method of composting that is super fantastic is a bokashi method now that involves um, anaerobic um, composting and you're in essence fermenting the material and breaking it down Bakashi composting is one of the very few examples of composting where you can include um, meat and animal products. You do not want to include animal projects in or animal products, excuse me, into your typical um, garden compost because it'll attract bugs as well as animals to be digging around in it, and it just it creates a lot of stinky stuff. So that's one thing that we don't want to introduce. Um, <clears throat> another method of composting that is something we are absolutely hoping to be able to get into is a loamy. Um, now, loamy is a tabletop composter. It is a fantastic way for you to quickly break down kitchen scraps as well as biocompostable plastic products which um, is starting to become a thing there are, are a few products out there that are made from bioplastics and you can actually compost those in the loamy um, with loamy it goes on your countertop it plugs in you add your scraps to it and when it's full or you're just ready to to compost it then you add a tablet to it to help um, with enzymes that it's going to need and then you simply choose which composting option you want and turn it on and Lomi does the rest. So Lomi will sit on your countertop and it will go ahead and grind up the material. It'll get it good and hot. It takes care of everything and they have quick cycles that are, are ready the next day. You can set it up before you go to bed to run quietly overnight and then the next morning you wake up and you've got fresh organic compost that you've made yourself right there on your countertop. Um, now, this is not a sponsored post by Lomi, um, but it is something that we are very much hoping to check out in the near future. So if we're able to um, get a Lomi in the near future, we'll definitely give it a review and let you guys know what we think. But the people we do know that have them absolutely love them. It's really simple and it, it gives you nearly instantaneous compost. Um, now, one of the ways that we break down other materials on our farm that we don't compost in the traditional way is we make a Gardener's Revenge liquid fertilizer. Now, this is a different type of composting because it's not set up in any way like the other methods. So we will take our weeds and things and we put them in a heavy black plastic storage tub. 
We fill the tub fairly full of veg- vegetable matter, and it's usually the weeds and, and things that we don't want to go in the compost bin. Um, still omitting the walnut tree, though. Still omitting walnuts. But um, our morning glory vines and other things will go in there. And then we fill it with tap water, or if it's going to rain, we'll leave the lid off to let nature fill it up, and then we top it off with rainwater until it's completely full. We put the lid on it, and we let it sit and bake in the sun, and we let it out there for a couple of weeks. Now, I'll be really honest. When the time comes and it's time to, to clean out the bin, it's not a fun process. It is horribly smelly. It smells stagnant. It is it is a foul odor. However, what happens in that heat is it's going to break down that plant matter naturally using the sunlight as your heat source into that water. And it's going to kind of liquefy a lot of the softer tissue of those weeds that you've got in there. It's great because if there are any bugs or other things on there, it goes ahead and breaks them down as well. So then you're killing out by literally drowning the the weed seeds and the bugs and the grubs and things are getting cooked, basically drowned and cooked, so they're not viable for life. But what they are leaving behind is an amazing nutrient-dense liquid. So you're going to pour that into a bucket that you strain. Um, I just use an old t-shirt um, stretched over the top and pour your liquid through and then we will um, go ahead and get rid of the remaining plant matter and start a whole new bucket again. That liquid that comes off of there is a highly concentrated liquid fertilizer that's all natural, all organic. It is super nutrient dense, so you do want to water it down. So you use about one cup or eight ounces of the liquid that smells terrible. (laughs) mixed with a gallon of water and you can use that um, to fertilize and water your plants. Now you do want to be careful to make sure that when you use a liquid fertilizer like this you're going to want to make sure you're watering from the root level. You're going to want to not splash it all over the leaves because you run the risk of burning the leaves. So what I like to do is I like to use my skinny nozzled watering can and water directly at the base of the plant and then just to be sure peace of mind that I don't have any residue on any of the leaves we'll do a really quick rinse and water um, and I always do all of this at night we do all of our watering in the evening um, so that it is not going to have any risk of burning our plants during the day because water does magnify the sunlight and can burn your leaves or scald them um, So if I'm going to be watering anyway, I will go ahead and do a really quick light mist afterwards to make sure any of that um, residue is is rinsed off. And so that's another option that we use to compost. We also compost manure and use that on our farm. So I told you we have two bays in our compost bin. One bay is basically kitchen scraps and household scraps. And the other side is our manure bin. So we have a friend, a dear friend who has a horse and she works at an equestrian center and we retrieve um, horse manure from her and in return we then put it into our compost bin 
and go through there, make sure it stays damp, and then we go through and turn it frequently so that the bacteria can make that horse manure safe to use in the garden. Because directly from the horse, it is not safe to put that on your garden. It is way too hot. And what that means is it's got entirely too many nutrients in it to be safe on your plants. If you're planting directly in horse manure or if you're planting the horse manure directly into your garden, you're also introducing lots and lots of potential for pathogens. Um, I mean, when you think about it, if it rains, in essence, there is fresh horse manure splattering all over your fresh produce. And that's just something you want to avoid because that's kind of a gross situation and no amount of washing is going to make that produce perfectly safe. So we well compost our manure before we put it on the garden. So we'll put that into one of our compost bins and just be rotating it fairly often. And then when we plant, we use our composted manure as a top dressing. So those are the more common types of composting and those are the ones that we use here on the farm and a couple of them that we do not currently use. We do not currently use a Bakashi method either. Uh, myself, I have been around them before and frankly the odor is something I can't deal with. Um, the bucket is closed so once you've put the material in there with a Bakashi system, um, which is where you're fermenting and rotting food in, in an anaerobic environment, you know, it's, it's a closed lid system, so there's that, but once you take that lid off, it's the smell is not something I personally can handle, so we don't use that one. We currently do not have a Lomi, um, although it is something that we had very much would like to give a try, and we don't currently use a tumbling composter. But we do use all the other methods here at the farm because being good stewards of the land mean making use of everything that we have to the best of our abilities. Um, we are working very, very, very hard to eliminate the amount of waste that we are using and generating here at our homestead. So we have tried to do a lot of upcycling and free cycling. We have been getting rid of a bunch of our things and just giving them away or donating them. Um, because as we continue in our permaculture journey, we are trying to get to a point where we have just less and less and less of a, a footprint on the earth in a negative way. Um, people often ask me, you know, what's the difference between permaculture and gardening? One of the main things about gardening, gardening is something that you typically do in the spring, summer, and early fall. Whereas permaculture is more of a way of life. We live the permaculture life year round. So even though, you know, it was negative 20 something Fahrenheit here in Ohio around Christmas time, we were still collecting seeds um, and, and getting seed packets. We were working on our garden plan. We were inventorying where we were at with our food storage and like, how much we needed, adjusting how much we're going to plant this year. It's a full way of life. You know, we're still building our compost over the winter, even though we're not actively growing right now. Um, you know, chickens, they're a year-long animal. They're not just like a plant that's only alive when it's nice out, you know. Chickens are a year-round commitment, as are bees. Um, now, bees are not so active in the winter. They're They're hibernating, in essence. They're dormant but they do still have needs that need taken care of. So permaculture versus gardening, permaculture is very much a lifestyle.
Now, I said I would talk about um, things, you know, the differences between green and brown material and things like that. There are some things that should never go into a compost bin. Now, everything that I'm about to talk about, you can omit when referring to the Bakashi method. Um, I don't really talk much about the Bakashi method because it's just not something we do. However, when you're building compost, the important thing to keep in mind is that you want to have a really good ratio of brown and green material. And you're going to hear that term thrown around, but what exactly does that mean? Well, brown material is going to be high carbon items and green items are going to be high nitrogen items. So some examples of brown material are going to be things like leaves in the fall, hay or straw. So if you're using straw bales or hay bales to build a cold frame this time of year, then you can use the leftover straw to top your beds because as we all know, mulching is very important to help keep that ground cool and to keep the moisture in and to help keep weeds down. But if you have more straw than you need, don't just get rid of it. Go ahead and add it to your compost bin. It's an amazing source of brown material for your compost bin. You can also use shredded newspaper and shredded junk mail, um, brown paper bags, wool, ha uh, hair, and that sounds really strange to say, but, um, you know, we have, our dogs are both short-haired dogs, but in the past, I've had long-haired dogs, and they shed a ton, and every time I brush them, I have mountains of dog hair. Well, you can throw that right into a bag and put that right into the compost bin. Um, when I clean out my hairbrush, I take my little pile of hair that comes out of my hairbrush. That goes right into the compost bin. Again, it's eliminating a waste stream and it is adding that nice carbon-rich brown material into our compost. Some examples of green materials are going to be your food scraps. So that's going to be your onion peels, the tops on your celery that you may or may not use, or the bottom, the root part of the celery can go in there. Um, the guts from the inside of a pumpkin <laughs> or a squash, just make sure it's a hot compost, otherwise they're going to sprout. You can use coffee grounds, we talked about that, and tea bags or tea leaves. Grass clippings are a fantastic green material. Now, the thing with grass clippings that I caution you, grass clippings are a fantastic addition to your compost pile, but only in certain cases. So grass clippings you have to be careful with because you could be adding a bunch of weed seeds. So if your lawn has a ton of weeds growing in it, you could be introducing them. Now, while some things like dandelions may not be a bad thing because dandelions are actually quite beneficial to the environment. They have really deep tap roots in them and they can help break up tough clay soil like we have here in Ohio natively. They also are an edible plant. You can eat the leaves on uh, dandelions. You can pop the um, yellow flowers off, bread them, and they taste similar to a deep fried mushroom. And you can make all kinds of salves and balms from the, the dandelion plant. So getting some dandelions in your compost bin and accidentally planting those, not so much of a problem. However, if you are inadvertently putting some crabgrass seeds in there or things, that can be a problem. 
So you want to make sure that you don't have a bunch of weeds that you're adding to your pile. Also, chemicals and, and things, you want to be really careful of that. A lot of folks have their lawns treated with a broad-spectrum herbicide to kill off things like dandelion and plantain and mullein and other plants. But the problem with those broad-spectrum herbicides are that if you've treated your lawn with a, uh, with a weed killer and then you're putting your lawn clippings into your compost bin, you're actually basically covering your compost in chemicals designed to kill your garden. Uh, because in essence, annual vegetables that you're going to be growing, as well as most perennial vegetables, are a broad leaf. So you're actually adding chemicals to ruin the garden. So you got to be careful and make sure that you have a chemical, um, synthetic chemical-free yard that you're taking these clippings from and you want a yard that's not really heavy in weeds which it's a fine line you got to walk there because in order to not have weeds you oftentimes find yourself needing to use herbicides but in order to use the grass clippings for your compost bin you can't have the herbicides so you got to kind of get picky and choosy there but grass clippings if they are done right can be a fantastic green source Manure is a green source, um, so it's loaded in tons of nitrogen. It's got other chemicals in it too, but manure is considered a green source. Now, when I'm talking about these things you should be adding and not adding to compost bins, I'm pretty much exclusively speaking to the non-Bakashi still at this point. Because in a traditional composting setup, so the tumblers, the bins, the buckets, the vermicomposting with worms, all of those things, you never want to add meat, dairy, fish, bones, oils or fats, um, diseased or decaying plants, chemicals that are synthetic, glossy paper, um, you want to avoid things like staples. Now, you can shred your junk mail, but I have to be careful and I make sure I rip off the little plastic window in a lot of these junk mail. They have a little clear plastic window so you can still see the address, but the envelope's still sealed. Well, those little tiny windows are not biodegradable, so you got to pick those out. Um, and you can't use things like magazines that are glossy or glossy-sided cardboard, but you can use solid brown cardboard. Now, I like to compost my pizza boxes, but pizza boxes often have oil or fat on them from the pizza, so you cannot compost those pieces that have that oil or those fats in there. Because again, it, it totally messes with the biodiversity inside that pile, and it changes that, that structure of what's in there. Now, some tips for, for making your compost do well. An ideal ratio is two parts, uh, two thirds of it, you want it to be brown material. So the leaves, the sawdust, shredded paper, wool, brown paper bags, cardboard, leaves, things like that. And about a third of it, you want to be the green material, which is your scraps, your food scraps and things like that. It doesn't have to be perfect. And if it's 50-50 and not, um, you know, 30, 30% green and 60% brown, it's not going to hurt it. But the more that you have an even balanced ratio, the better it's going to be. If you have too much green material, it's going to be smelly. And if you have too much brown material, it's just not going to break down very fast. Because the brown material needs the green material in order to get broken down because it doesn't have a lot of 
bacteria and things wanting to gnaw on it. And the green stuff, well, if it doesn't have the brown to slow it down a little bit, it's just going to get really smelly really quick, and you don't want that. You want to make sure that you're turning your compost at least once a week, um, ideally two or three times a week if you can. Um, you want to water it so that it's about the the wetness of a well-rung sponge. So you don't want it to be like oozing liquid out, and you don't want it to be so dry that it's crumbly or you have to break it apart by squeezing too hard. If you squeeze it and a little bit of moisture oozes out, you're doing well. Um, Now, by keeping it well mixed and well balanced, making sure it stays properly damp and making sure that it's got adequate airflow, you should have usable compost in about three to six months if you're keeping all of those things in check. If you do what's called lazy composting, which is where you just kind of throw it all together and let time do its thing, you're looking at more like a year to two years for a compost pile to break down naturally. Um, Now myself, I'm impatient, so I'm all about that going out and turning that compost life. Um, We've also done some composting that's hands-off where we literally just throw stuff in the bin and let it ride. Um, The beginning part of this year, we did that. Um, When we had all the leaves coming down this fall, we just got them all with a leaf blower and got them into a pile, raked them all into the compost bin, and just let them hang out. I did not mix them well. Um, I should have, but I did not. I did go ahead and make sure I put some kitchen scraps in there right away to add some green material in there, but it was certainly not balanced, and so it's taking longer than it should to to break down because I just didn't have enough green material. So that's super important. Now, depending on what you're doing with your compost, you may be able to raise enough compost or create enough compost on your own to not have to purchase any compost we are not quite so fortunate. I do have to get the uh, the manure to have enough compost. So we use a modified version of the no-till gardening style um, here at our house. We do cardboard on the bottom layer. And then on top of the cardboard, we add our raised bed. And we fill our raised bed with a mixture of organically sourced peat moss or cocoa core, which is shredded coconut bits. Um, You do have to be careful with your cocoa core. Make sure that it's desalinated um, because some of the cocoa core that you can get does have salt in it still because coconuts are a tropical thing, so they're right around the ocean, and so you get some natural salinity to it. You have to be careful because too much salt can actually kill your crops. So we... um, we tend to use the the peat, which I know there's a lot of movement to do away with, with using peat in the garden because it is having some negative environmental impacts. But for now, we're using up what we have until it's gone. Anyhow, we do that, and then to that we add a layer of compost, and then we top it with a thick layer of straw. I'm talking four to six inches of straw on top of it. We plant into the compost and the peat moss mix, and then the straw on top, it grows, you know, our plants grow through that, but it keeps the ground moist. Now, straw is going to break down a lot faster than wood chips, for example, 
And we do use wood chips in the very, very bottom of all of our raised beds. So it's a kind of mini hugel culture um, style. Now, I guess you could say that hugel culture is kind of a mild version of composting as well. And we are starting a new um, hugel culture bed this year. If you're unfamiliar with hugel culture, it's a really, really fun pr um, process. So you're going to dig out a trench um, or a hole. And in our case, it's the size of two of our beds plus one walkway. So it's double the size of our other beds. We're going to dig that out. And we're going to reserve the dirt that was inside of it. In the hole, we're going to be putting logs, um, bigger logs in the bottom, and then a thin layer of dirt. And then we're going to be adding some of the smaller logs and then a little dirt. And then on top of that, we're adding some of our cocoa core and peat moss, as well as some of our compost. And then the soil that we saved, we're going to be putting back on there and topping it with another layer of compost and then planting in that once it's settled for a couple days. Now, the benefits to hugel culture, some of them are that the logs that are in the bottom of these, these mounds, which they'll be hills when you're done, the, the logs are going to absorb moisture, and then they're going to slowly begin to rot. And as they do that, they're going to leach that moisture back out into the soil. They're going to break down. They're going to feed the fungus and the soil naturally for you. And so it's a way for you to have an improved planting um, experience. The layers make it so that the things break down at different times so that you don't end up with an abundance of super well rotted material as well as super giant material. It is super fantastic. I think that's what all I've got for you today. I'm looking over my notes here. Yes. All right. So that's what we have for you this week. We are on the or in the process of setting up an interview um, with two different guests. We've got some special guests coming up very, very soon. So you'll have that to look forward to. Make sure you check out our website. If you have not gone and scoped it out yet, our website is www.hogsandhensdayton.com. And there you will find the show notes from this episode as well as other episodes in the past. You can research and find information on a host of topics related to permaculture and gardening. And if you have any questions at all, never hesitate to leave a comment on um, your on your podcast that you're listening to and we will do our best to reach out to everybody. You can also find us on Facebook at Hogs and Hens Urban Farm. Um, if you have any questions at all, don't hesitate to reach out. <clears throat> Excuse me. I thought I was going to sneeze. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that your garden grows wonderfully. I hope your seedlings have all started and are doing amazing. And I look forward to talking to you next week. Have a great day.